Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Andrew, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 98 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. Hey there. How's it going? Pretty good. I mean, normally there'd be more to that intro, but as uh, most of y'all folks know, um, Bailey and Dylan have just started their uh, parental leave, expecting um, their child any day now, really. As of the recording, no baby, but soon, baby. But yeah, how are you, Toby? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm starting to realize uh, within, you know, second 30, just how much calm energy Bailey brings to the to the hosting capacity. Not that you are not bringing calm energy, but I'm just so used to just being like, oh, Bailey's got this. I'll just comment when I feel like it. But the pressure's a little bit more on when there's just two of us. Oh, yeah. I'm terrified that I'm going to say ridiculous <laughs> things just because I feel like I need to fill space. So before we get into like the the meat of the episode, do you want to have a little housekeeping? Because I mean, this is sort of new and different for both of us. Yes, please. We have a couple uh, announcements, some changes. Um, as we mentioned before, we want to have guests on the show um, to help us out. And we've got our first guest. She's going to be on next episode. She's been on the pod before. We're very excited to welcome back Talia Bolnick of the Hatchery Press here in Los Angeles. Talia was uh, our guest and she read uh, 1984 by George Orwell with us. She kind of blew us out of the water intellectually, very intimidating. Uh, so we're all looking forward to that. <laughs> um, she has already picked her book and it's because she approached me. I was speaking to her about doing the pod and she said, oh, have you done any Octavia Butler books? And I said, oh, unfortunately we're doing Wild Seed you know, I'm already doing it. It's already been announced. And she said, well, it's, you know, number one in a series. Why don't we just do number two? So that's what we're doing. Um, Talia and I, on the next main episode, we will be reading Mind of My Mind, which is number two in the Pattern Master series by Octavia E. Butler. Um, so if you guys want to read that, check it out. Also, while we're in our sort of housekeeping corner here, this may be heartbreaking for some of you to hear, but we are going to take a short hiatus from doing the mini-sodes. So we're back to a, at least temporarily, a once every other week release date of just the main episodes. I know y'all really like the mini-sodes, um, and we hope to do them again in the future, but it's just too much for us to do as just two people for now. So we'll let you know if we're feeling like bringing them back, and we will aim to do that. But for now, we just need a, uh, to focus on being able to edit. And read. All of a sudden. And read. Now, yeah. All of a sudden, we're both Bailey now. We have to read a book every two weeks. Yeah, we used to have a, a sweet, sweet month to finish a book. Mm-mm. No, no longer will I have four weeks to read The Old Man in the Sea, a 90-page book. <laughs> did you did you finish that one early? I can't remember. I didn't. I finished it the day we recorded. Well, it, was, it wasn't because it was... I didn't start it four weeks in the future. I just procrastinated starting it until, like, the very last moment. Uh, same with um, This One Summer. Okay, yeah. <laughs> the graphic novel <laughs> that you can read in, like, four or five hours. I find it's actually easier to finish longer books on time because I feel like I have to make a schedule. It's when it's, like, the Wild West of a short book that should be easy to read that it becomes really troublesome. Yeah. it Well, it turns from, like, your friend where you're just like, I don't have to worry about you today, and then it turns into your enemy. Because it's like, oh, you didn't, you didn't do this. Oh, something that I haven't checked in with you in a while, Toby. How is, um... How's your Zelda quest going? Oh, well, I mean, it's over. I did it. I, I saved Hyrule. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, the thing is, Bob Balaban's work's never done, so I can't, <laughs> I can't understand something being over. There are always more dribbles to be dribbled, I suppose. There's always more dunks to be dunked. Yes. Well, actually, Toby, you had um, something you wanted to talk about, sort of similar to Zelda and, and Bob Balaban of NBA 2K fame. Yeah. You were talking about book video games? 
Yeah, I I think there have been um there's a kind of sorted history of book video games. I believe the Terry Pratchett Discworld has a couple uh video games associated with it. I think there is a Redwall video game and there's I mean there's some more, but they're not very popular, but it got me thinking since we all sort of at least play video games, which book on the to read list would you like to see as a video game? That's like my question. Okay, that's a great question. This could be like a recency bias thing. I wonder if you're going to say the same book that I thought of. Well, first of all, I want to say I would play a Redwall video game. Yeah, me too. If it doesn't exist, it should. And if it only exists in like the 90s or early 2000s version that it exists in, it needs to be remade for like stunning 4K. I think you need I think you <laughs> I think you need to get it on floppy disk. I think that's the only way to get it. Oh, no. But I was thinking, what if they made a a crying of lot 49 game <laughs> where you're at a Pamas and you're trying to investigate the like waste postal service and all the, the happenings of Southern California. That could, that could be like an interesting, like last of us investigation games. Oh, you're thing. thinking last of us. I'm, I'm thinking, um, have you ever played LA noir? It's a kind of obscure. Oh no, one. but that's a better call. That's a better call. Yeah, because it's like you're a detective. If you guys, ha- if you haven't played it, I believe it was for the PlayStation, and it was like you played through like a noir detective story, and there was like it actually relates to my pick for for the book to be video game because there's buttons like you look at someone and you can press B to doubt. <laughs> you know, like you doubt what they're saying. I like that. I mean, I think the video game Crying of Lot Forty Nine. I feel like you would just play half of it and then it would just end. And you'd be like confused and none of the clues would fit together. And there'd be like, there'd be a bunch of puzzles that were like so insanely difficult that no one could ever solve them. The end credits would just pop up as you're like halfway through your game, thinking that you're just going to your car to start your next part of the mission. Absolutely. Yeah. I like it though. Yeah, no, it it could be fun. Someone could do a cool job with that. Maybe that's what Thomas Pynchon's working on right now. He's coding his new video game. (laughs) Man, I hope so. I would love that. I would play that. Yeah. What did you think of? Uh, well, uh, maybe recency bias as well. Maybe not as recent, but uh, I thought Rebecca would be a really fun video game. That would be. Yeah, that could be great. Kind of spooky, trying to navigate Mrs. Danvers. Okay, so I have I have two different ways you could do it. You could do it as like one of those playable novels where you have kind of like a branching, like a branching narrative. Like a choose your own adventure sort of thing? Mm-hmm. But maybe with a little bit more interactivity and you could, there would be levels where you had to like wander around the house and do certain tasks. And that's, that's like the kind of straightforward, like straight down the middle pitch for it. My other pitch is that it's like a Mortal Kombat style game where you <laughs> you fight at different levels. And so like you fight Mrs. Danvers and you get to like go all out and you uh, and she like uses her she uses her super weapon, which is her comparison stare where she compares you to Rebecca and it drains all your life force. And then, of course, the final big boss is Rebecca as a ghost and she's all drowned. So you fight her at the end. I think maybe it'd be cool. Uh, it'd be very satisfactory for me, at least to see our unnamed protagonist uh, fight Max because I think he definitely deserves a couple punches to the snoot. So, yeah. Definitely to the snoot, for sure. Right up to the snoot. Yeah. Oh, this has got me, like, spinning. I mean, I feel like Old Man in the Sea, catching Mm -hmm. that fish, trying to bring it home. That's more of a short-form game. That's more of, like, a bar game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like like Deer Hunter, but Old Man in the Sea. (laughs) Can you imagine that, like, the most hipster bar ever in Brooklyn has the Old Man in the Sea? Buck Hunter version? (laughs) Yeah. Ah, that's pretty great. Um, and I mean, Robinson Crusoe would be a good game, probably a better game than it is a book. Yeah, that'd be like that'd be like a like of Age of Empires or like one of those ones where you kind of look, you're looking down on the map or something or Starcraft or something. Yeah, I mean, the good part about that is you could build your island as Robinson, but never have to like engage with Robinson's very troubling belief system. Exactly. Yes, I like that. So, Toby, 
our first solo endeavor. What book did you read uh, this week? I read Wild Seed by Octavia E. Butler. Ooh. All right, so here is the logline. Wild Seed by Octavia E. Butler tells the story of two immortal beings. Doro, who must move from one body to another in order to feed himself while pursuing a sprawling, often cruel breeding program in colonial America, and Anyanwo, a healer and a shape changer who is as drawn to Doro as she is repulsed by him. That's intriguing. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, wow. I feel, okay, I'm going to have to collect myself a little bit because I'm not going to lie. I feel uniquely unqualified to discuss a lot of the issues in this book. This is very much a book about the Black experience as told through a kind of allegory, a gigantic allegory. And it is a book about suffering. It is a book about the history of slavery, about existing in systems that are designed to exploit and harm you exclusively. Um, and as a straight white male, I just don't have that much experience, you know, living that story. I find it fascinating, but I do want to say up top, I, I'm a little bit afraid of stepping on my own toes. Um, I consider myself a, a careful, considerate person. Um, but yeah, this, this is one of those books that feels heavy. It, it feels important to me. Um, and so I just wanted to say that up top. All right. Uh, so this book, um, I, I really, really, really enjoy this book. This, I mean, I'm not going to give away stars or anything, but oh boy, I really enjoyed this book right from the beginning. Um, and it just starts, it starts in Africa and it starts in the head of Anyanwo. Uh, the, the story is told so delicately and you learn very slowly who she is and that she's very long lived. She has these abilities to change shape. She's basically, she and Doro, who are the main characters, when you describe them, when I describe them, they sound hard to relate to because they're basically superhuman. But this is one of those perfect books to me of fantasy, sci-fi, where the author does an incredible job of creating actual care you feel like you know these people and you can relate to their struggle and their struggle primarily for both of them is that they live forever and they're very lonely so yeah so this book begins um ayanwo is kind of wandering africa um she has learned over the many years of her life uh, she's a shape changer and she's able to change her shape at will but she's learned that she likes to be near people she likes to be near her children and her relatives but she's learned that she must change herself over time to appear older because otherwise she'll stay the same age and people are terrified of her they'll treat her as a witch she's been attacked before she's been cast out so she's kind of living this underground life and trying to deal with the fact that she lives forever she has to watch people grow up and pass away she She's approached right at the beginning of the book, and it's one of the most amazing openings to a book I've ever read. She's approached by this being, Doro. Now, if I had read this book when we did our mini-sode on villains, Doro would be my top villain. Even beating Clooney. Even beating Clooney. Can you imagine? I mean, I'm having trouble imagining, but... I ask you to imagine, Andrew, please. So yeah, he the, the opening is so subtle, and Octavia E. Butler trusts her readers so much to be able to kind of pick apart the story that these two characters are telling and you learn all these salient facts about their abilities, who they are, what they want, and it's very slow and gentle. But nevertheless, from the first page, from the first time you really interact with Doro, he is terrifying. The, his casual cruelty, his kind of power and confidence, and 
this interaction between them with Ayanwo being fascinated with Dora, but also kind of repulsed and scared of him and him considering her beneath him, but also coming to realize that he needs her. That is the engine of this whole book. Can these two characters who are the only two people like this in the world, can they come to live with each other? And it's so much more complicated than one is good and one is bad. They both have, you know, on the kind of cosmic scales, uh, Doro is, is a bad person, but he's not entirely bad. And Anyanwo uh, is not entirely good either. And it becomes this story of Anyanwo, we're definitely on her side and we're trying to figure out if she is going to be able to exist in a world controlled by Doro. And that is where it kind of turns into this giant allegory for existing in a world that wants to harm and use you. Um, now, I said that these are the only two people like this in the world. That's not entirely true. Um, Doro is much, much older than Anyanwo. Anyanwo, when this book starts, is supposed to be about 200-ish years old. He's supposed to be about 3,000 years old. So he's seen millennia come and go, and he is lonely, just like Anyanwa. They see everyone they know die. So he has kind of, over the thousands of years, he's kind of become detached from his humanity. And all he wants to do is find people in the world. He's kind of drawn to people with special abilities. And he's trying to breed them to produce someone who lives forever like him so he can have a companion. And so that is the kind of catalyst of the book is he encounters Anyanwo. He figures out she can live for a really long time. And he wants to kind of put her into his breeding program. Um, and she is, it's so complicated. I don't, I couldn't really say why she goes with him, but she's drawn to him. She has hope. She's a healer and she hopes that maybe she can heal him and change him. And in that way, the book ends up being a pretty powerful story about abuse and an abusive relationship as well, which is very intense. I mean, this, this story does not play around with its themes. Uh, it, it almost immediately, we learn that Doro, um, he kind of, he can move from body to body and he kills whoever he moves into the body of. And he's involved in the slave trade. Um, he presents as a black man. Uh, that's like the the form that he chooses the most and seems to be his natural choice, but he slips into white bodies as well. And so doing that and pursuing his breeding program, um, yeah, he engages in slavery. He does all sorts of awful, awful things. And the more that we see of him and the more this world is fleshed out, the more we want Anyanwo to kind of emerge victorious or, or really take him down. And the book I won't say what happens in the end, but it's very obvious from the very beginning. It's just not as clear cut as that. The The power that he wields is so complete that all you can do is struggle against it. And when you say he moves from body to body, does he have a form that exists outside? Like, does he have a pure form that is just him or is he always in somebody else's body? That's a good question. Um, no, he needs to, like, uh, the rules for him seem to be he needs to reside in a body. He can't really just float around. And it's never described, uh, he, you know, he, he kind of inhabits another body by touching the next body when he's in one body. So there's, it's not like we see, like, Ghost Doro or we see his true face or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, those are the rules of him. The abilities that these people display, both on Yanwo and Doro and the many other characters who have lesser versions or different abilities, they're all presented in a really beautiful way that I, I found very believable. So you, it's really a world you can sink your teeth into. Um, and Butler does an incredible job of building this huge world out. So it's a contemporary world, you know, it's America and colonial times. Um, so there are things we recognize, but then it's just so the idea of these people with special abilities kind of living underground or living enmeshed in the culture is so believable and so real. And so I'm excited to continue reading this um, this series. 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're really jazzed about this. Like, I can I can hear the excitement in your voice about wanting to learn what happens next. So I think it's really good that you have um, Talia coming in and uh, facilitating that right away and not waiting for it to be drawn off your to-read list. Exactly, yeah. And uh, in a kind of tangential way to that, I did, I did have something I thought about. I was thinking about this book a lot when I was reading it and thinking about how strong the allegory is and how it kind of slots neatly into this tradition in sci-fi and fantasy of commenting on our world at large by using allegory and, and these kinds of stories. And I loved it so much. And I did begin to wonder why we have things like Fahrenheit 451 in in like our high school reading curriculum and not stuff like this, which Fahrenheit 451, so we, we had to read it for ours. Um, it was pretty common, I think, in California schools. My parents, I think, read it. You know, it's, it's just a very popular book and there's nothing particularly wrong with it. But if you compare its scope and its and in the clarity of its message which honestly in fahrenheit 451 gets a little muddled at times and a little bit weird with the like the brilliance of this vision and what how strongly she is saying the things that she's saying in this book um I, w- I would say this is a better book to introduce young readers to science fiction um and it's also quite Oh, it's you know science fiction fantasy it's also quite soft science fiction fantasy it's not you know people aren't zooming around shooting lasers out of their fingers you know people have special abilities and i think a lot of people who enjoy quote-unquote realistic fiction or literary fiction could definitely get on board with this book so if you're an educator and you are thinking hey so much of these like 60s 70s 50s classic science fiction books that we recommend to kids are written by white males get some octavia e butler in there please 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 yeah, I mean, it sounds like I, I know that there's also that sort of classic trope of these science fiction or fantasy authors have like thrown in some sort of problematic attitudes or like non oh, yeah. modern attitudes about things. So it seems like this would be a better way to sort of add that into your repertoire of, of novels. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I have nothing, I have honestly nothing but praise for this book. Nothing but praise for Octavia E. Butler. So like one star, two stars? Yeah, I mean, I I was between one and two stars. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) no, I mean, as you could probably tell, this is a five star book for me. I am so excited to have found a new author. Yeah, I'm delighted. This is, uh, this is like a highlight of the whole to read list for me. Well, that's awesome. Because I feel like so often, even with five star books we have, we still have like one or two tiny misgivings, but this is like mm-hmm. the most overwhelming recommendation I've heard from you in this year and a half that we've been doing this podcast. I would say that's that's correct. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. Well, great. I'm, I really enjoyed it. Do you have any facts for us about Octavia Butler? I do. I'm actually very curious. All right. Yes. Facts for you, Toby. Um, Octavia E. Butler was born Octavia Estelle Butler on June 22nd, 1947, in Pasadena, California. Her father died when she was seven years old, and her mother, who worked as a housemaid, raised her along with her maternal grandmother. When she was a child, Octavia Butler was devastatingly shy and was subsequently bullied. She also had um, dyslexia, which made learning difficult, so it was like a compounding thing. She was really shy and also wasn't doing well in school, Um, but she found some solace at the local library, um, where she read and began writing at a very young age, filling like notebooks and notebooks of of her work. And she was attracted to fantasy and science fiction from the very beginning, reading from both genres furiously at the library. And um, (laughs) by the time she was 10, she had convinced her mother to get her a typewriter so she could type up her work. Um, So a case of a writer who knew they wanted to be a writer from the very beginning, almost. Very cool. 
When she was 12, she saw on TV the film Devil Girl from Mars and found it very inspiring. Just kidding. She (laughs) was convinced she could write a better story and uh, said in an interview that this inspired her to write what became the foundation of the um, Patternist novels. That Wild Seed is the chronologically first novel, but not the first one written, which we can talk about a little later on. Um, She continued writing while she attended Pasadena City College. Her writing was recognized at the school, and she continued writing throughout that. She graduated, um, and while she didn't initially sell stories, she was cooking from the the (laughs) get-go. To support her writing, she worked temp jobs, including, and this is my favorite uh, of her temp jobs, working as a potato chip inspector. What? Um, What? Yeah, I didn't dig into that more than that just because there wasn't time, but I got to look up what a potato chip inspector does. I imagine they catch the weird ones before they go in the bag. Well, no, that's like a job like Daffy Duck would have, you know? Daffy Duck and Octavia E. Butler. There you go. And while she was working these temp jobs, she woke up very early in the morning to write at like two or three. And then eventually she started taking writing courses through UCLA and other writing workshops. And the science fiction author Harlan Ellison took an interest in her work and encouraged her to participate in something called the Clarion uh, Science Fiction Writers Workshop, which is in Pennsylvania, um, where eventually she would end up being a regular teacher. Uh, later in her life after she found success. And through this workshop, she actually sold her first stories and gained momentum, which led to her publishing her first novel, which was called Pattern Master, which I guess is the final book in the Pattern Master or Patternist series, but the first published. Yeah, I knew I knew that from just glancing, because I was curious, uh, I knew that this almost was the, it wasn't the last book published, I think, but it was certainly later uh, in the publication date. Yeah, I think it's second to last. Okay, it makes me really intrigued to read Mind of My Mind. So, um, Pattern Master was published in 76, and then she quickly followed it up with two more books in the series. Next, Mind of My Mind, and then Survivor. Um, And then by 1978, she was living solely on her writing and left the potato chip factory inspection line behind. She continued to steadily publish work, including uh, Kindred in 1979, um, which is not part of the Patternist or Pattern Master work, and then followed by Wild Seed and Clay's Ark in 1980 and 1984, respectively. And those are the final books she wrote in the Pattern Master series. And she became recognized for her work, winning several Hugo and Nebula awards. And then after the publication of Parable of the Sower, um, which was in the early 90s, she received the MacArthur Fellowship, also known as the Genius Grant, which was actually the first of its kind awarded to a science fiction author. And then she followed up Parable of the Sower with a book called Parable of Talents, which was meant to be a the second in a six-book series, um, all the titles that involved Parable in it. Um, mm-hmm. But she sort of started slowing her output. Apparently, this was caused by a couple different factors, general writer's block, and then also depression caused by both the research um, for the Parable novels, which she said was really grinding her down, and also some negative effects from some high blood pressure medication she was on. And so she actually abandoned that series after two novels, even though there were four more planned and even like outlined. Uh, and she only published one more book in her lifetime, which was called Fledgling in 2005, which is a vampire science fiction book. Um, and she pivoted to that because she said it was more fun and lightweight than the Parable series. I mean, I can imagine. I mean, there there are themes and stuff going on in Wild Seed that are very, like the, the heaviest things you can get onto. So I can't even imagine what research became too much for her. Yeah. 
Octavia Butler died on February 24th, 2006 at age 58 of a stroke. Um, she collapsed outside of her home in Washington State, hitting her head, and she passed away. Uh, there's actually a little bit of controversy about whether uh, w- what killed her, her head wound or the, the stroke, but uh, most people agree that um, the stroke was the underlying cause. And then just because that was sort of a depressing end to her biography, uh, a few other fun facts. Um, her papers are at the Huntington Library in San Marino, California, if you would like Ooh. to try to visit them. Um, a mountain on Charon, one of Pluto's moons, um, as well as an asteroid, have both been named after Butler. That's pretty cool. And then in 2019, the LA Public Library opened the Octavia Lab, which is named after her, um, which is a creative lab space for, for makers um, named in Butler's honor. And finally, uh, several memorial scholarships in her name are given, specifically helping students and writers of color. Um, Butler herself didn't actually set them up, um, but had written in one of her notebooks, which was sort of like her manifestation board or like her dream board, um, mm-hmm. very specific goals. And three of them were... I will send poor black youngsters to writers' workshops. I will help poor black youngsters broaden their horizons, and I will help poor black youngsters go to college. And so, after her death, um, an organization took those goals and made them a reality. And I thought that was sort of a nice way to to end it. That's really cool. And is there any other is there any better word in the English language than youngsters? So yeah, that's Octavia E. Butler, and it seems like uh, an author who will be a part of your life going forward. Yeah, and a part of our life as the True Read List going forward as well. <laughs> So, Andrew, um, well, did you just skip it this time or did you read a book? Uh, how do you feel? Yeah, I was going to skip it, but instead I decided to read What is the What by Dave Eggers. What is the what? What is the what? That's a great question. And you know what's an even weirder thing? I feel strange calling this book a novel by Dave Eggers, and I will talk to you about that in just a moment. But first, my logline. Uh, in Dave Eggers' What is the What, a fictionalized autobiography, we follow the life of Valentino Achak Deng, a very real man and member of the African diaspora. The book chronicles Deng's harrowing and wrecking journey of survival from childhood in South Sudan through government-led genocide, civil war, and rare uneasy safety to life as a refugee in America, where Deng's future is anything but settled. Great log line. Thank you. Um, and so the reason it feels odd to call this a novel by Dave Eggers is... As that logline sort of suggests, Valentino Achakdang is a real man. All this stuff or something close to it really happened. Mm-hmm. So when Deng wanted to share his story, apparently, and this isn't to step on your research, it's uh, it's in the preface of the book. Uh, he wasn't comfortable enough with his like command of the written English language to write it. So he did interviews and interviews with, with Dave Eggers, who then wrote his story. But the way it's framed, like, if you skip that preface, you <laughs> wouldn't know that this book wasn't just written by Dave Eggers. Yeah. But I'll talk about some of the things I liked first, and then we can talk a little bit more about maybe some orcs. So just to give you a little more plot context, the book is told from Valentino's voice when he has already arrived in America. So you, so that he got out of Sudan, that he got out of Africa, and, and has been sent to America, that's established. Mm-hmm. And the format it takes is... In his head, he is talking to characters who have either wronged him or who he doesn't think could possibly understand him and telling them his autobiography, but all in his head. So, for instance, uh, there's one moment where he's in the hospital waiting room and the man behind the check-in desk is like taking a long time. And so he starts talking to him. But again, all in his head, all within him, and he starts running through his story. Um, 
So it's sort of a strange conceit, but it's actually quite effective because it does that thing where immediately the concern about the survival of the main character is established. So you don't have to worry about that. And then he can also sort of take the story where he needs to take it. And it doesn't become information given to you as he perceives it. It's the information he wants to tell you as it pertains to his story, which is interesting. And it's a good, I think, overall frame. Yeah, I find that, I mean, lots of memoirs, or not lots, but I think uh, some of the more interesting ones realize that the format of a memoir can be a little bit boring. And so an interesting framing device is always cool. Yeah. And so sort of to pivot from that into the things I really liked about the book, The Elves, it resists the urge to sort of frame America as this be all and end all and like, or like a land of a dreamlike prosperity streets paved Mm -hmm. with gold like from the get-go you know that his life in america is hard and people are not helping him the way it seemed like they would help him or it's not the kind place that he was promised and that allows us as a reader to see into the life of a refugee after people like stop seeing them as in danger or they stop sort of that initial caring um because Like, there's all this fanfare made about bringing him to America, but then once he's in there, like, obviously some of that falls away. And and so it engages with that both in, like, sort of not an accusatory way, but in, like, a questioning way of Americans, but also shows you from the refugees' point of view, people, them, like, expecting certain things which just aren't delivered. So it's an interesting dynamic there. As a, as a person who read this book a long time ago, that is one of the few memories that still sticks out to me is that I don't think bleakness is the right word, but the the non-promised land feel that he paints very strongly uh, about America stuck with me. Yeah, absolutely. To me, it's like, it's a frankness. There's just like yeah. an honesty about it, which I really enjoyed. Um, part of that is also just carried through in the novel. Like it doesn't let itself get affected by what's happening. Like terrible things are happening, but it doesn't allow itself to like be horrified by these horrifying things. And it doesn't let itself get sad by these sad things. It has like a matter of fact tone, which and a frankness which which really actually carries through and is is effective as a storytelling tool and like similarly to not painting america as a promised land it it does something similar to refugee camps where i think the world thinks of refugee camps as a temporary place but he frames it as if you get to this refugee camp and no one actively takes you out of it you're here forever like that's your home and so it just does a lot of examination of what you would expect as sort of a an american audience and and says no that's just not how this works and so those were the aspects of the book that i found really interesting um just a couple of other quick things i liked about it it has a really great rhythm um i don't it's the copy i have is 535 pages with like pretty small print yeah and i don't think i can remember a book that long that i've gotten through this quickly and like it wasn't an immense struggle like i i read it in a week i mean i did spend a lot of time reading each day but like I didn't feel like I was slogging through a 500-page book. It felt to me like reading a more breezy 300-page book, which is crazy with sort of the horrors that are on a lot of the pages. Yeah. It just has a rhythm that carries you forward. And Valentino, as a narrator, has a great quality of sort of being able to walk you through things matter-of-factly, things that are hard and things that are complicated, but just sort of tell you what you need to know. And I do have one quote I want to read from the book. In my copy, this is on page 353, um, and it's talking about after he's in America trying to connect with someone he uh, was in love with at the refugee camp. And if any of that sounds like a spoiler, it's not. Like, all of these facts come out very early in the book, and it's just sort of an examination as you go forward. So don't you worry. She was in Seattle, and I was here in Atlanta, and we let this distance remain between us. 
I could have easily left this city for hers. There is little to keep me here. But she was in college, and I wanted to finish my semester's classes, and so we felt compelled to stay where we were. I cannot count the times I have cursed our lack of urgency. If I ever love again, I will not wait to love as best as I can. We thought we were young, and that there would be time to love well sometime into the future. This is a terrible way to think. It is no way to live, to wait to love. Oof, that's a good quote. Yeah, it's a great quote. Um, and a testament to the writing that like that rhythm carries forward but in what was very sort of simple language you get incredibly like big and and um yeah and complicated ideas um yeah so those were the things i really liked about it uh just a couple of small orcs when we're going into this um orklets goblins orklets yeah i mean i have one big orc and i have some goblins and so here's one of the goblins most of the time i really like that quality of the simpleness of language and the matter of factness of it but sometimes it took on sort of a listing quality where it would just list a lot of events that happened and i didn't know which ones i needed to like clock and which ones were just supposed to be like piling on it's a tiny thing that's like a literary device that I don't particularly care for, the the list of things. It happens in a lot of literary books, and I I never, I rarely feel that I'm getting out of it what I'm supposed to get out of it. Well, I think back to like Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried, which is basically that, mm. especially the short story version of it. And I feel like that's like the perfect way to do it. So anytime someone else tries it, it just doesn't quite work for me. Yeah. Um, That's such a great pull because that is like the one that works. And then when it works, you're like, oh, wow, how elegant and, and beautiful. But then most of the time I'm just like, this is just a list. Yeah. Exactly. It's a and it, it, that's a small one. Um, the framing device was great, but the direct address conceit didn't always work. Like he's he's talking to different people in his head, and sometimes like the connection was really strong, and you got why he was trying to tell this story to this person. Um, mm-hmm. But sometimes it just felt like he was doing it because that was the conceit of the story, not because it like was born out of narrative necessity. Um, but it, those are my small things. And then the big thing is that I just didn't know how to classify this book in my head. Like, hmm. was I supposed to think that this was Dave Eggers writing a novel about Sudan, which is not really something I wanted to read. I didn't really want to read Dave Eggers imagining what it would be like to be a lost boy, like leaving Sudan. <laughs> and because the cover makes it look like that's what this is, I that's why I hesitated picking this up from the shelf for a long time. Um, yeah. And yeah, so it's confusing because just to dig in a little bit more, it is basically um, Valentino Chakdang's story, but they didn't want to like be so attached to like having to try to remember conversations. They wanted a little more narrative freedom. And so they decided to classify it as a novel. So I know that, Toby, you're probably going to talk about this in your research a little more, but it was so confusing to me as a reader. And it really did just sort of create this little worm in my brain where I, I couldn't completely give myself over to the book. And part of it isn't even their fault. Part Part of it is like the cover design's fault because like Valentino Achak Dang's name is not on the cover. It's just Dave Eggers and the words a novel, at least on my copy. So I was just confused. Um, all that said, I want to give this book four stars. It was Ooh, okay. like, so those, all the things I talked about in the, in the elves were really good. The big thing that frustrated me is just like, I didn't know how to, to engage with it, which was troublesome in a lot of ways, but didn't overall keep me from recognizing that the book was good. So I would give it four stars. I toyed a little bit in my earlier reading, like earlier stages of reading, giving it three. But in the end, like it, it lands really well. It has a great ending. I think, yeah, it's a four star book. Keep it on your shelf? Uh, yeah, I'll keep it on my shelf. Um, nice. Yeah. 
Do you have any facts about the book or Dave Eggers or Valentino Dang? Or I do. I have some facts. Let's see here. So first, I'm going to go over Dave Eggers because he is the author of this book. Dave Eggers was born March 12, 1970. He's an American writer, editor, and publisher. Um, he wrote the best-selling memoir, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. Um, he has many, many credits to his name, many published books. He was the founder of McSweeney's, a literary journal that is still cranking out stuff today. Um, and he does a lot of uh, kind of work with foundations. Um, he created the project literacy project 826 Valencia, which now has outposts all over America. Um, and he also founded the human rights nonprofit Voice of Witness. Um, and he is the founder also of Scholar Match, a program that matches donors with students needing fund for college tuition. Um, he was born in, Ma- in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, one of four siblings. His father, John K. Eggers, was an attorney, while his mother, Heidi McSweeney Eggers, that's what McSweeney's is named after, was a school teacher. Um, when he was still a child, they moved to the suburb of Lake Forest near Chicago, where he attended high school and was a classmate of actor Vince Vaughn. Hey. Eggers attended the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, he was intending to get a degree in journalism, but his studies were interrupted by the death of both of his parents, his father in 91 from a brain and lung cancer and his mother in January 1992 from stomach cancer. And these events are chronicled in his first book, the thing that really brought him to Nash immediate national fame. Um, It's again a fictionalized memoir called A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. Um, At the time, he was 21 years old and his younger brother, Christopher Toph, was eight years old. He had two older siblings, Bill and Beth, but they were busy. They couldn't commit to care to him. Um, So Dave Eggers took the responsibility of caring for his eight-year-old brother. Oh, wow. He left the University of Illinois, yeah, and moved to Berkeley, California uh, with his girlfriend at the time. and that is kind of what a uh, heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius chronicles, which is probably the biggest Dave Eggers book that I have not read. So I did not know that, that that's what it's about. So that's kind of his founding story. Um, from then on, um, while he was caring for his brother, he got started doing temp work and freelance graphic design for a local newspaper. He started a satirical magazine. He kind of edged his way into the literary world that way. As I mentioned before, he has an extensive bibliography. Uh, he's created works uh, in memoir, fiction, dramatic work, visual art, you name it. Uh, some of his notable books you may have heard of include The Circle, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, How We Are Hungry, You Shall Know Our Velocity, and many, many more. Now, I figured that um, I remember when this book came out and in the years since, kind of the thing about this book is, so how much of it is Dave Eggers? How much of it is Valentino Achak Dang? At the time, even, it was a bit controversial because it does say a novel by Dave Eggers. Um, Now, you mentioned this, Andrew, but in the preface of the novel, Deng says, quote, Over the course of many years, Dave and I have collaborated to tell my story. I told him what I knew and what I could remember, and from that material, he created this work of art. So Eggers is not new to kind of fictionalized memoir as... um, heartbreaking work of staggering genius shows and so he basically did the same thing for for this they um he says eggers has said by classifying the book a novel he freed himself to recreate conversations streamline complex relationships add relevant detail and manipulate time and space in helpful ways all while maintaining the essential truthfulness of the storytelling however uh not everybody loved it um the critic lee siegel said um kind of what i felt about this book when i read it is that there's at least as much Dave Eggers, if not more maybe in this book than Dang, um, with kind of like just literary turns and just things that are fictionalized. I mean, it's an amazing life story, but there is a question as to how much it is Eggers creation and how much uh, is Valentino's life experience. 
Um, I will say uh, to Edgar's credit, uh, Valentino has been emphatic uh, about the fact that he wholeheartedly is behind this work. He believes that Dave Eggers told his story correctly and artfully, um, and this was a, a decision that was reached together by both of them. Um, so these days, I just want to give you all an update. Valentino Acheteng um, has returned at least um, some of the time to the Sudan, um, and he runs the VAD Foundation. That's the Valentino Acheteng Foundation, a foundation that's dedicated, in their words, to creating a sustainable and peaceful society through education and farming. So that is where he is today. Cool. And I think you started the VAD Foundation with Dave Eggers. Yes, I believe so. It's one of the many foundations <laughs> that Dave Eggers has uh, created and promoted. Yeah. So yeah, all in all, four stars for me. I have some sort of big questions about it, but ultimately I was able to put them aside to to enjoy What is the What by Dave Eggers from the story of Valentino Achakdeng. Heck yeah. So normally this is when Bailey would ask me if I have a game for you. I'm curious if you have a game for me? I just have a game for you, Toby. For no one else, this is just yours. Oh, wow. I, if I lose it, how bad will I feel? Well, I'll admit this is... <laughs> A new experience for me, and I don't know if this is something that we'll be able to continue for every episode. Maybe when we have guests, it'll be easier. Um, but yes, I've created a one-person game for you, Toby. Toby's Space Race. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. Um, so the way this is going to go, I combined my limited understanding of Octavia Butler, assuming since it was she was classified <laughs> as sci-fi, it had something to do with space. Um, uh-huh. But also the fact that she has a mountain named after her on a moon of Pluto. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, some basic trivia. So here we go. So to set the context here, I have a little bit of a scenario I've set up, and then we're going to jump into the game. But the scenario should set up the, the rules of the game. Okay. All right, Toby. You're on a spaceship that is idling pretty close to the sun. Way too close. The main engine of the ship is busted and needs to be repaired, but the only place that has the parts for this specific kind of ship is on Pluto's moon, Charon, atop the mountain Butler Mons, which is the name of the mountain that is named after Octavia Butler. Why so far? Because your uncle built the ship, and your uncle is a kook who lives on Butler Mons. Seeing as your uncle is a kook, he has a strange backup engine. It's fueled by correct answers to questions. Oh, God. Each correct answer gives the engine enough energy to get one planet closer, but three incorrect answers in a row shuts down the engine and sends a message over its communication system that just says, the person on the ship is a big dum-dum. Can someone help <laughs> this big dum-dum? If you answer another question incorrectly after that, the spaceship shoots you out into space and you die. Oh, no. <laughs> uh... I love this game so much, but I do want to mark this for like for the for the history makers, for the history researchers. This is when the idea was first posited that faster than light technology is achievable by correct answers to trivia questions. Yep. So and we all know that's how we're going to get to explore the galaxy. Um, what will your questions be on? You ask the cartridge that is uh, stuck in the engine, the backup engine, is themed all about Africa. So obviously that's taken from the fact that um, the characters in Wild Seed are originally in Africa, and then also what is the what takes place primarily in Africa. And I took these questions from a website called JonesAroundTheWorld.com. His list called Facts About Africa, and I've changed them into questions. Oh boy. Okay. I really hope I get some of them right. I'm, ex- I'm very excited. Here you are near the sun, Toby. Uh, your first question to get you to Mercury. A waterfall in Africa um, on the border of Zambia and Zimbabwe is one of the seven wonders of the world. Do you know what it's named? Is it called Victoria Falls? That is correct, Toby. You have made your way to Mercury. One correct answer has shot into the engine and traveled you very far, very quickly. (laughs) I'm telling you, fast and light technology is powered by correct answers answers to trivia. (laughs) After the South Sudan split from 
Sudan as a whole, and now it's two separate countries, a different country became the largest in Africa by area. Do you know what it is? Egypt, South Africa, or Algeria? I'm going to say Egypt. That is incorrect. No. A red light has turned on on the engine. <laughs> oh my God. You got to clear it. This scenario that you created is so tense. I'm going to be, people are going to know that I'm an idiot. Well, <laughs> that's up to you if that beacon goes off. But remember, if you get one answer correct, you clear that line. So I think you can get there safely. You still have plenty of time. Okay. All right. I got this. All right. Senegal has a lake of an interesting color called Loch Rose. What color do you think it is? Loch Rose. Uh, like pink. That's I'll correct. Pink. It's pink. Yes. Uh, it's caused by a type of bacteria, but the lake is completely safe to swim in. Um, so you have jetted forward. Your incorrect answers are clear and you are hanging out near Venus. Nice. I would, I'm, I'm going to choose this time to take a break and have some astronaut ice cream. There you go. Fair. Thank you. Tastes like chalk, sweet chalk. Inside the country of South Africa is a smaller landlocked country. What is it called? Is it Lesotho, Togo, or Seychelles? Togo. I'm sorry, that is incorrect. Togo is located in Western Africa. Uh, Lesotho is the correct answer. Lesotho. Oh, okay. Both Nelson Mandela and Blank were influential South Africans who were awarded the Nobel Prize. They also happened to live on the same street at one time. Nelson Mandela and Bishop Blank. Bishop Blank? No clue at all. Bishop Rook. I don't know. I'm just naming chess pieces now. No, that is incorrect. Desmond Tutu. Mm-hmm. Archbishop Desmond Tutu. All right, two lights have lit up and you're stuck near Venus. Oh no, this could not go well. A much beloved fantasy author was born in South Africa. Who is it? Terry Pratchett, J.R.R. Tolkien, J.K. Rowling. I mean, it's gotta be J.R.R. Tolkien, right? That is correct. And you have shot <sighs> yourself forward all the way to Earth. We're gonna do this faster now, a little speed round. Okay. Nigeria has one of the world's largest movie industries. What is its nickname? Mm. It's technically bigger than Hollywood. I know this. It's in Nigeria and it's technically bigger than Hollywood. Nollywood. That's correct. It's Nollywood. <laughs> You've shot forward to Mars. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Listener, this is when I admit that I need to look up the order of the planets after Mars. <laughs> All right. You're just under halfway there. Again, we're going to keep going. Keep going quickly. Africa is home to both the tallest animal and the fastest animal. If you get both of these correct, you will shoot to Jupiter and then immediately all the way to Saturn. So we're looking for the tallest animal and the fastest animal. Okay. The tallest animal is the long-legged cheetah and the fastest animal is the turbo giraffe. <laughs> well, you were aggressively incorrect, but the, the engine only operates on hearing the answers it wanted to hear. And since you said giraffe and cheetah, <laughs> which is actually the correct answers, you shot forward. You're all the way to Saturn now, swanging on those rings, having a grand old time. All right, here you are, hanging out near Saturn. You're trying to get to Uranus. And here's how, the question you got to ask. Which country has more pyramids, Egypt or Sudan? I'm going to go with Sudan. That is a wise answer, catching the trick question. Apparently, Sudan has more pyramids than Egypt, 200 plus, um, but the largest pyramid is actually found in Mexico. What? Wow. We don't have time to dig into this, but that's a fascinating fact. Jonesaroundtheworld.com. I'm going to have to research that a little later. So you have shot to Uranus. Okay. Congratulations. So you're hanging out at Uranus. You're two stops away from your uncle's uh, repair shop on Butler Mons. Um, and here's your question to get you to Neptune. The world's largest frog lives in Cameroon. It's named the blank frog, and it can grow to be more than 13 inches long. Let me give you a hint. It has something to do with a giant that could be found in the Bible. 
Okay, show me Goliath Frog. That is correct. It is the Goliath Frog. I maybe overly gave you a hint here, but I'm really invested in you getting all the way there. Yeah, the first the, the first thing that popped into my head was the huge frog. The big so old frog. I might need the help. Well, I'm glad you thought about it a little longer and said Goliath Frog, because now you are hanging out near Neptune. You're one stop away. You just need to get one more correct to save yourself and not have the whole universe know that you're a big dum-dum. Come on. So... Africa's most commonly spoken language is Arabic. What is the second most commonly spoken language? Is it a trick question? I don't know, but you might be closer than you think to it. English? And that is correct, Toby. Congratulations. English is the second most (sighs) spoken language in Africa, and you have shot all the way from Neptune to the moon of Pluto Charon, and you are on Butler Mons. (laughs) I've got a bone to pick with this kooky uncle. Come on, cookie uncle. <laughs> Congratulations, Toby. I hope that was a fun way to play this game. Um, it was. It was very tense. I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the narrative structure to it. I'm glad you did. So that's our first solo game in the in the books. <laughs> and also uh, the better part of our first solo episode in the books. Yeah. Only thing left now is uh, a sort of abbreviated version of the choosing. Normally we choose, we have the choosing where we choose uh, the books for me and Andrew and even Bailey sometimes. Um, but since uh, I'm going to be reading Mind of My Mind by Octavia E. Butler with Talia in the next episode, we're just going to do a choosing for Andrew. So the random number selector has chosen for you, Andrew, book number 79 in your shelf, Trust Exercise by Susan Choi. Okay. Cool. That's exciting. That So that's a new book, a new sort of buzzy book. And it was either second or third in the voting for one of our recent uh, To Read List Book Club books. So hopefully a lot of y'all have that on your shelf and uh, we'll be excited to hear what, what we think of it or what I think of it, I should say. <laughs> I'm excited to hear what you think about it as well, Andrew. Um, and if you like what you heard in this podcast, please give us a rating and a review on iTunes. I recommend five stars if you can spare them. Um, it does help more people find our podcast. Definitely. And if you enjoyed what you heard here, um, the best thing you can do to help spread word of the pod is to tell a friend, tell someone you know who loves books, who loves reading, who maybe has a big to read list themselves. Um, it really, especially as Andrew and I captain this ship into the world of tomorrow, which is what we say we're doing uh, in text messages to each other. That really help us. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the To Read List podcast. Or on Facebook and Instagram at the To Read List podcast and on Twitter at To Read List pod. Thanks to Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you next week. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books. books.